Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Chanda Chacon, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Chanda Chacon has devoted her career to pediatric healthcare, focused on the patients receiving care and the people and organizations providing it. She is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha. Prior to Children's, Chacon had progressive leadership positions at Arkansas Children's Hospital and before that at Texas Children's Hospital. She earned undergraduate degrees in biology and Spanish from Vanderbilt University and a master's degree in public health management from Yale University. Her community engagement includes serving as a board member for Project Harmony, as a member of the American Hospital Association Committee for Maternal and Child Health, a member of the Greater Omaha Chamber Board of Directors, and also enjoys speaking at leadership events about the power of leadership. Chanda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. I wonder if we could set the stage by, if you wouldn't mind me asking you to share a little bit about your childhood and and growing up. Sure, absolutely. So my parents are Midwesterners, and I was born in Peoria, Illinois. And, um, but like any good Texan, I got to Texas as quickly as possible. So I was two when we moved to the Dallas area to Plano, Texas, and I was raised there. I have an older brother and, um, he's two years older than me and we were raised in Plano. And, you know, I think I was really lucky. I had parents who were super supportive of me and being a young female, having an older brother was really told you could do exactly what he can do. And so I took that to heart and um, really focused a lot uh, growing up on academics. And I was in a band and was chasing to keep up with my brother. Um, For me, the most formative um, experience that happened when I was a child, which impacted my career, was um, when I was 11, I was in a car wreck, then was shuttled around the medical system for a couple of years even being in the um, Dallas area, there was a children's hospital, but I never went there. Um, and I had really strong parents who are trying to be really good advocates, but it's a complicated system. And so that was really formative to me, um, deciding what I could and couldn't do in the world. That's why I got really involved in band, really creative, because I couldn't be in sports and do that kind of work. Um, and then, uh, my brother went to college and I couldn't wait to get out of Texas, you know, couldn't wait to get there and then couldn't wait to leave. What did you enjoy doing as a child at age 11 that preceded the car accident? Yeah. So I was, I had always been, um, in music. I had been in band prior to that and I loved that, but you know, in around the time I was in the car wreck was in middle school. And that's where I think you make a lot of decisions about what are you going to be involved in and what are you going to do? And having been in the car wreck and then subsequently I had a spinal fusion, it sort of forced me to make different decisions. And I just was raised with the philosophy that whatever you decide to do, aim to be the best in that. And so 
you know, honestly, at the time, I didn't really think about what I wasn't going to be able to do. It was more about this is my new set of choices and I'm going to be the very best at what I could do. And so I'm always active in band, always active in academics. It just became my focus areas. I wasn't um, sort of wooed away by other things that I could have been become involved with. I've read you share this story with others and you've remarked that the pain was bad enough that you would have to spend a period of time using a wheelchair. Yes. Yeah. When I was in, in sixth grade, um, it was probably the first year I was in sort of shuttling around the medical system and I had really bad pain down my leg and in my back. So I couldn't really sit longer than 30 minutes or stand longer than 30 minutes. And so one of my friends who was a year younger than me would wheel me into the middle school in a wheelchair. And my mom remembers thinking like, how is this going to work? Right? Like it's just such a formative time and kids can be hard on each other. And um, I was really petite, like very, I mean, I still, I'm still short, but I was really petite. I couldn't reach the top locker anyway, but um, that made, it just made it hard to, um, you know, be different. But I think I learned a lot from that. I had a really tight network of people who were supportive and helpful to me. Um, but it did give me a different perspective. I think it, at a really formative time, um, helped me know that being different was okay and that I could be just as powerful and just as influential. Um, but it certainly was a really, it was a really challenging time, not just for me, but for my family. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's hard enough to expect any 11 year old to have to handle an experience like that with the kind of maturity that, that you can see now. But I'm wondering what were the impacts on your family? Yeah, it's, you know, you can talk to my mom today and it's over gosh, more than 30 years ago this happened. And you can talk to her today and you would think she had a child who was injured and had a child in the hospital. It's Those memories are so real for her when she talks about it. And certainly real for my dad as well. And my brother, you know, he was two years older. So he was at that stage where, you know, a lot of attention was being placed on me. Um, and that's hard, right? And he didn't know how to help. And that was, I think, the most challenging part of all of it was the healthcare system can be very complicated and complex. And everyone in my family was trying to do their very best. And it was still hard. And it still had, and I mean, I say now a negative impact because you can see the emotion in my mom. Um, I don't think it had to be that way, but we, it was, we were using the best knowledge we had. Um, I do think that what came from that is really powerful and really positive and how it brought us together as a family. We communicated differently. I was really close to my mom as a, te- a preteen and most preteens are, girls aren't right close to their mom then um, because she was my, she was my only friend for a long time because I was homeschooled for a while. And after surgery, it just, it was, um, she was my world. And that was, that brought us really close together, which I think is a gift. Um, looking back on it now. Obviously, I'm thinking about this experience in, in terms of what you've already alluded to, which is how it shaped you, how it shaped your family, but also the lessons that you brought forward professionally. So clearly, I think there's a through line. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to jump straight to the ending. So you shared that you 
went to uh, Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And your field of study, you chose biology and Spanish. What were the motivations for you choosing those two areas? Yeah, so um, I was really good at science. And so that was um, something I enjoyed. I, I really loved it. Also, I knew early on because of this experience that I wanted to be involved in healthcare. I didn't know what that looked like, though. I, we're not great always at advertising what you can do in healthcare other than, you know, being a physician or being a nurse. And I knew from my perspective of what I had experienced, I wanted to impact the system because it wasn't individuals that let me down. It was the system that was hard. And so I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare on the system, but I had no idea what that looked like. So I was, I was good at biology. I really enjoyed it. And uh, growing up in Texas, my dad told me, you need to know how to speak Spanish. And so I'm, I was, a I think I probably still am a rule follower, but I was a rule follower. He told me that and I'm like, okay, all right. So I um, chose to double major for that reason. Um, you know, for me, it was, it was challenging, but having kind of gotten through a challenge when I was really young, I didn't really see those things as impossible. I never really look at something as impossible. I look at it as, okay, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to get through it? And so for me, it was, I'm here four years and I want to get as much out of this experience as I can. So um, that's why I double majored. I look back now and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, that's a lot. Um, but it was, a, it was an awesome experience and gave me exposure to things I don't even know that I, I knew I needed. You know, when I was in undergrad, I lived in Spain for a summer and just being able to see different cultures and being outside of the U.S., like living there was so, oh, it was so amazing and such a great experience. I believe and I know to be true that my experience with my back surgery as a child and that experience in healthcare absolutely drove me to major in biology and major in Spanish, but I didn't really know what it meant at the time. You shared that your husband is um, of Venezuelan heritage. There are obviously ethnic languages there, but but the lingua franca, as it were, was, is Spanish. And I, I'm just curious if you look back and think, well, of course you studied Spanish because it opened the door perhaps for your eventual relationship. Oh, gosh, that's my husband would probably love to hear that, Stuart. I think I think it's probably, you know, for me, it was really I honestly was listening to my my dad who said this is going to be really important in the future. My parents were very good at thinking what it what skills I needed, what I needed to be able to learn how to know how to do when I was an adult. I, I mean, I think about it now and I'm like, they were so gracious to do that because I, you know, I was raised in a time where um, I could have been told like, here's all the barriers for what you can and can't do. And instead they were like, here's all the things you need to know and learn and do so that you can be ready for all those opportunities. And so I think that was most of it, but it is certainly funny because I remember meeting my husband and he's like, I don't think you speak Spanish. It was hilarious. And then I started speaking Spanish. He's like, oh, okay, well, I guess you do. Um, but it, it definitely for me has opened, I, like I think a whole culture and a whole um, exposure to people that I probably wouldn't have had had I not gone down that pathway to major in Spanish. And, and being from Texas, it's just, it, it's just normal. Like it just feels a part of the culture and a part of um, who we are, especially when I lived in Houston for 14 years where 
that for me is just, it was a, it made it easier. I could tell what my parents were doing, um, being an adult and going, oh, I can communicate to people and families in the elevator and help people get where they need to go. That, that feels now I'm like, oh, I'm so glad my parents were so smart. I don't, it makes, it feels like it's a gift to be able to do that for other people. Entirely sure the exact date you started at Children's September eighth of twenty twenty. September eighth of twenty twenty, right in the heart of the pandemic, and so you come into a healthcare setting and a leadership role at a truly uh, uh, traumatic time for everybody on the planet. I don't know where to start with a question. <laughs> I know you're like, and that, <laughs> and there, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, you know, for me, I'll tell you, it was. I laugh now because people are like, oh, that must have been so hard to come during that time. And, you know, I kind of joke and say, you know, my husband and I couldn't think of anything better to do in a pandemic than like move across the country and like start a new job. But to me, it actually, um, being in healthcare during that time was certainly super challenging and um, still, I think, challenges us in healthcare of how we work and how we help people. And you know, I don't think it was any different at the beginning. And healthcare does, we do well in a crisis situation. I think what the pandemic showed us is that crises can last a really long time. Um, that was certainly new. And, you know, I always kind of look at career moves and um, where I go to work and where my husband and I choose to be a part of the community as really great opportunities of how to have an impact. And that is what I saw this opportunity as. And to me, whether in the middle of a pandemic or in the middle of February or, you know, right now when it's 100 degrees, like it, it, to me, it's really just the opportunity to make an impact. And so that, whether any of those things, those are for me, I was sort of agnostic to that. It was an amazing opportunity to make a really big impact in a community that was ready for that in the children's hospital and the children's hospital was ready the team members were ready. My um, natural orientation and leadership is about the people part of leadership. And so it sort of seemed like the perfect timing, not just for me, but also for the organization. And so certainly it was challenging. I tell people it's, you know, it's challenging moving and having a new job anyway, but there were gifts that the pandemic gave me by starting a new role. Um, there was a lot less happening in the outside world we were very focused internally. And so coming new, that gave me a lot of time and space to, you know, I said my first hundred days was listening and learning about 
the great things of the past, the ideas of the future, where the organization was. And so that learning time and not being sort of distracted by things happening outside of the organization was really powerful and very helpful for me to learn deeply quickly. Um, and so looking back now, you know, almost two years here, that was, that was an amazing time of learning and reflection and getting to know people and who the organization is made of um, and who supports us externally and community partners. It was, it was awesome. Like it was probably the best start to a job that I've ever had because of the pandemic and what it forced us to do as an organization. And so, um, yeah, I kind of look, I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of, kind of gal. So it, that to me was a gift of the pandemic. Is there anything in particular that stands out to you that was a challenge unlike others that you'd had to face before or institutionally that you you could see had to be addressed? And then also, here we are, the pandemic maybe is converting into something different for us. It's COVID still exists in its multiple forms. So it's not going away, but it, we're at a stage where I'm wondering if you see some silver linings mm. and uh, other lessons that you learn that will be perpetuated. Sure. I think the biggest challenge that I saw, um, and I know others in healthcare felt the same way, was, you know, normally in healthcare sort of crisis times, people in healthcare feel, okay, you come to work and you feel the crisis and you're managing it. And then you go home and you get like home feels okay, right? Like everything's more stable and it feels like you can get your, you know, juice back and then go back to work. And this was really different because home life was upset for most people, whether it was around work or, you know, daycare for your kids or kids in school. And it just was really stressful in both settings for people. And that was new for me to see the stress that that puts on people when your job is in healthcare is to take care of people. And then you go home and your job is also to take care of people. And that was, you know, so profound to me to, you know, realize that how impactful that was on people in healthcare, no matter if you're a direct care provider or, you know, in finance or human resources or marketing, it just, it, it impacts everyone in healthcare that is in, in a really unique way. And watching um, that toll that it took on team members was something that I don't know that healthcare was prepared for because we've never seen it like that. And for that long to happen. And so that was a, you know, a great challenge for us. It's, we're still working on it. I don't think we have like the silver bullet to, we've had it all figured out. But really, um, for me, it was a profound um, reflection on my own leadership style. I had always been very focused on people. And I would say in other roles in my career, I talk about, okay, we're going to put people first. And if we put our people first, all the other things will follow. And this was the first time I saw that just materialize so brightly of why that's so important to really focus on how we help our team be great, not just at work, but also at home so that they can be great in both spaces because it takes a toll on you. And, you know, if work is really hard, it takes a toll on home and vice versa. So how do we create strategies not that don't just help you be better at work, but just help you be better in life? And that for me, being able to say, gosh, like, I feel like I've worked 20 years at this style of leadership for this moment. And that, 
that is cool, honestly, to be able to see, gosh, you know, right out of graduate school, it's like, you know, you have all these tactical things you think you're supposed to do around leadership. And at the end of it, it really is about people, right? Leaders lead people. They're not just leading process or things. It's about people. What are you trying to do as a leader as regards nurturing a culture? Sure. You know, for me in any organization that I go into, I under I understand that there's a huge need to honor the past and where the culture currently is because the organization's functioning, right? Great work is happening. And so to understand where we've come from to be able to lead forward. I tell people all the time I like leading from the windshield rather than leading from the rearview mirror. Like, cause the windshield's bigger. Like it's easier to see out the windshield. Um, but it just, it talks, you know, for me, it's about the future and where we're headed and um, understanding how we put people first and what we do to promote that for me is in everyday action. It's not like this big, like, here's the five things we have to do on a piece of paper. For me, it was in the little things of, you know, taking the time to have a discussion with people, to sit down with individuals, no matter what your role was at the organization, because I really look at the work we do and I'm like, everyone is a leader. Like you lead from the seat you're in, from the role you're in. And we all have a different role to play. And so it was, you know, letting people be heard and actually hearing what they're saying was really powerful for me to understand where the organization had been and where people wanted it to go like the empowerment of people, that was really huge. People could see the future and they were like, how do we get there? So to me, it's in the biggest impactor in the everyday actions, the little pieces. Um, you know, we were on a town hall and we, you know, getting in healthcare of like getting used to Zoom, right? And so I was at every town hall. We do eight of them every quarter and I'm always on them. My senior executive team is always on them. We're not scripted, right? We know what we're going to say, but we take random questions from people because that human interaction and connection, I tell people, knowing me as Chanda first, and then I'm also the CEO at Children's, that's important. I want people in the organization to know who I am, to have heard me talk, to feel like I'm also a real person too. And that um, showing that vulnerability and that authenticity for me is that puts the people on our team in that front position of listening to what they say helping solve the things that seem small but are annoying and make a, you know, impact people's well-being. That's important. So I, I, people ask me a lot. They're like, okay, Chan, you talk about people first. Like, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, it's all the things, right? It's sitting down before you make a decision and saying, how's this going to impact people? How's it going to impact what work they do? And in being, and being really deliberate with making decisions that help people and I can't make decisions for everyone to like do this and it'll help make things better, but we certainly can give people options and say, here's a whole cadre of things you could do or benefits you could have. You pick then for yourself what works. But um, I don't, you know, it's, it's also, I look back just early in my career and I think, you know, it's all the things I've wanted, you know, so what are the things I wanted and how did I wish the organizations I worked at would be and being able to now empower other people to do that, that's, I mean, gosh, that to me is a gift. It's, it's building the organization that I wish my family had access to. And that sort of is what grounds me always. April showers in the month of May 
ground still wet and the sky still gray. But you're still shining. No cadences or chords to play. No melodies or words to say. But you're still singing, and it keeps me breathing when I fall apart to a million pieces when I don't know where to start. It's an industry that, by definition, contains trauma, especially because there are children involved as well. And you may not be directly the person that is determining, for example, crisis standards of care and those sorts of things, but you are managing an entire institution, leading people responsible to numerous stakeholders. And I can't help but imagine that there are tough choices that have to be made and competing demands that have to be balanced, whether it's money, resources, Mm -hmm. staff availability or functioning, the expectations of a public, Mm -hmm. the traumas of stakeholders. So how do you go about balancing what must be competing demands on Mm -hmm. occasion? Yeah, I think of it more as integrating them really than balancing. I think as soon as you try to balance, like you're out of balance. So for me, it's more integrating and it, it, there are hard decisions that have to be made. Um, And I've always taken the, the perspective that being honest and being upfront with the why behind what we're doing is has always proven, even if people don't like the answer, understanding how either I got there, the team I'm working with got there, makes it like, okay, I don't agree with it, but I understand that. Because there, there's, I mean, there's always competing demands in what our team is capable of managing, what we're capable of just absorbing as an organization, whether it's, you know, with an amount of people we have or dollars we have to spend. And so to me, I wish there was like this magic rubric that would tell you how to do it right all the time. I think that's the challenge of leadership. And, you know, we get it right a lot, but I think we learn more from the times when we didn't get it right and go, oh, gosh, I really learned from that. And and for me, it's about, we talk about this a lot at Children's of, you know, I'm never going to ask people to be perfect because I'm not like that sort of a failing thought going into it. I want us to be excellent. I want the organization to be excellent. That feels like a journey to me. Perfection feels like a destination. And so I want to always strive for that. And that then will challenge us in those times where failure, you know, we might hate, well, I don't know, we might not, we hate to fail. We all do. But it, you learn so much in those moments. And so I'm always like, fail fast, like get back up. And now we know that doesn't work. So let's try something else. You know, the, to me, the, the transparency of letting people know when decisions are hard, letting people know that it also impacts me. Like I'm also human and I try really hard as a leader when amazing things happen. I have a good friend who used this 
phrase, when amazing things happen, as a leader, be like a mirror and let that great result shine back on your team. And when it's uh, like the bad stuff, like be a window and just let it all, like you take it all. Um, and that's challenging as a leader, but I'm, I'm upfront with people when it's hard. So they know, gosh, this isn't easy for me either. I'm not superhuman. You know, I'm just like everyone else. There's a role I play in the organization to help us get through some of those times and be able to take the heat so that the team can do the very best work for patients and families. And that, that for me is important. I'm thinking about compassion fatigue, Mm -hmm. again, just a result of the pressures of the last couple of years. And so healthcare staff, their families, but also those involved in healthcare generally, Mm -hmm. I think have been really bruised because of the last few years. And so I'm wondering if you yourself have um, had to handle being burnt out or compassion fatigue and had to help your team, your staff cope with those feelings too. Yeah, I love the phrase compassion fatigue better than burnout because burnout for me always feels like, gosh, we failed once we get to burnout. Compassion fatigue, I think, is probably what a lot of people experience of, you know, especially as a leader, you're listening to a lot of people and, you know, trying to take on and solve for and help. And it, it can be it can be exhausting, right, when you're also struggling to keep your own head above water. Um, you know, th- for me, the the best part, I think, as a leader is just being honest. So yes, I've helped a lot of people on my team and they've also helped me. And realizing that it's going to happen to everyone at different times. And I think this, the pandemic, we've, I've watched it, right? To all those people who are like, you're like, they're never going to be able to break. Pandemic will never break them. And I, you know, I watched it happen. I would say people were fraying at the edges and you started to see that in these people that we're like so strong and you're like, oh my gosh, if they're fraying at the edges, you know, what are the people who are less prepared for this? How are they coping? Um, that for me was when that started happening and it started happening to me too. And that's kind of when I knew I'm like, I'm like super resilient. I can manage all of this. And I was like, gosh, this is exhausting, right? It's emotionally exhausting. And that, that level of tiredness is different than like working 14, 15 hours a day, the emotional exhaustion was hard. And so, you know, we talk about it a lot at the beginning of almost every one of the meetings I'm in, I I call it kind of my connection moment of talking to people about their life, like what's going great, what do we need to know about? And initially that can be hard for people. And so I would pull in things and ask questions like, oh, how was this? Or what happened with your kiddo? Or how's your dad doing? to just get people to open up because, you know, the pandemic kept us so far away from each other that that connection back to me is, is important. That human connection part is really important. a little bit earlier about how your experience with the car accident 
yielded for you a sense that there were people that cared, individuals that cared, individuals that were uh, super helpful and competent, but the system itself was not set up very well to support you or your family in that time. You know, there are systemic issues with the American healthcare um, you know, system writ large, and you're not going to solve all of them, but you do occupy a position of leadership mm-hmm. at a large institution. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder what your perspectives on you know, American healthcare are and what sort of prescription you would write to help make it better than it is today. You know, I, the, um, the being personal part, you know, it's why I'm in this work is because it's personal for me. I feel really passionate about it. Um, it's also why sort of, I said about, I want to be excellent because it is a difficult journey. It's not easy things we have to do, but we have to try different things to see, does this work? Does this work? What happens? And we're in a really unique place at children's here in Omaha because Across the U.S., there's less than 35 independent freestanding children's hospitals, and we are one of them here. And what that means is that we get to make decisions that impact kids. So we're not part of a big system. We're not affiliated with anyone. So we can partner with everyone and do the best thing for kids. And that, for me, is a gift. It's really unique. And so when we do well as an organization, we can take, you know, what we make and invest it back into things that are the right things for kids, whether it financially makes sense or not. If it's the right thing to do, then that is what we do. And it's a a piece for me that was a reason that I came here was the mission of this children's hospital is to improve the life of every child, not just the health of every child. That to me is unique. It gives us a lot more breadth to work with partners to say the truth about healthcare is only 20% of what we do in the healthcare system impacts health. 80% is outside of my walls. So if I want to improve the life of every child, I have to get outside of our walls. And I think that that's sort of the you know next generation of healthcare is realizing that We can't just wait for the sick and injured to show up to the organization. We have to figure out how to get further ahead of that. And how do you know who we are before you need us so that you know what exists in your community and children's health and then work with people who are already doing great work on the other 80% that impacts health. Because I'm like, you know, I can't solve poor housing or financial literacy or food insecurity, but I can certainly go to those organizations that do that well and say, how do we help you do great at that? Could you give some examples perhaps of mm-hmm. that? Because that, I mean, if we're talking about 80-20 as a measure and the larger part of that is connecting your organization's work with the well-being of the, of the whole child mm-hmm. and their context I'm really curious what, what those opportunities and uh, you know, illustrations look like. Yeah, it's my most... With those, the three areas I told you about, poor housing, financial literacy, food insecurity, and mental health, those are our four hot spots for us that we're focusing on, mostly because all of those directly tie to child health. And it's probably the, the, what I am the most passionate about, sort of the future of where we're headed here at Children's, is working on that. And so I, th- I can tell you where we've started, which also makes me really proud, is 
we looked at those four areas and looked inward first at our own team members. And we did our own survey because it's hard for me to say, gosh, Stuart, you're at the front desk and you're going to help this family get connected with a food bank because they're food insecure, but you're actually hungry and you don't know where your next meal is going to come. How can I ask you to do that? If I'm going to put people first in our organization, I need to do that outside of just, okay, show up to work every day. And so we identified hotspots in our own organization of areas that needed more help. We've um, worked with organizations and actually the chamber, and we have um, a, a specific person focused at our organization that is helping our own team members get connected, that people can meet with them and say, hey, can you help me figure out, like, I don't know that I can pay my rent next month, like what's out there to help me do that? So we focused internally first. Then started looking on the internal side as well, where we um, started working with my good friend, Amanda Brewer at Habitat for Humanity and said, hey, you know, we know that poor housing can be an issue for our own team members. We want to, we know that we're not like we run a hospital, like we're not good at fixing poor housing, but you guys are. How can we work together? And a lot of things connected us through that. And, um, you know, I always think that like one little connection, and it was actually started in Omaha Executive Institute where I sort of those connections started forming. And so we're working with Habitat for Humanity with our own employees to help get the mortgage ready. To me, like we focused internally so that partly so we could say, gosh, can we do this? Right? Like, let's help our own team members. And then it's going to be further going out now of saying, okay, how do we partner in bigger ways? And it's not for me to put our logo on something or look what children's is doing to me, it's because it's our mission to improve the life of kids. Let's do that. And so those partnerships are forming and we're, we're looking now and have sort of curated um, organizations that fit into those four areas to say, how can we work together? How can we help you further your mission? Because by doing that, it actually helps improve the life of kids, which is our mission. So how do we do that together in the same way? there's so much alignment with that of the same social determinants we're looking at are impacting everyone. And how do we work together versus competing to actually do that work? We have such passion in our team for it, which makes me so excited when we talk about the impact we could actually have so that, you know, a child doesn't show up to our emergency department because they live in a housing situation where there's cockroaches that are exacerbating their asthma. And so they show up to the emergency department. Like I want kids to show up because there's, they have to, not because there was a way or something we could have partnered or done prior to that. Those partnerships are powerful. And then another piece we're doing for our own team members to help power that mission is this year we've given our team members volunteer hours that you know, if you're a full-time employee, you get eight hours to go volunteer at an organization that is directly linked to improving child health, which then just powers all of that. It just keeps feeding. And from a resiliency side, when you volunteer your time, you feel like you have more time, Just so weird, but it's, you know, I've, I found that in my own life too. So that for me is sort of that, how do we power that model by working with other people? you know, from just the child health side as well, the mental health piece of those, that, those four pillars for me is probably the most profound work we can do directly for kids right now 
Um, there's some research out there from the um, Children's Hospital Association that says, you know, prior to COVID, it was one in five kids were going to be diagnosed with a mental health condition. And post-COVID, it's more like one in four. Like, we have a huge challenge that if we can solve and help kids young, they do better in the long term. And that that's awesome. an article in the National Review a week or two ago, and it was criticizing children for taking part in um, a pride parade. It, to my reading, used some somewhat sloppy and misleading information to criticize the gender-affirming healthcare that is provided by children to members of our community. And I'm just curious if the nature of our current moment makes you and your team hesitant if those kind of criticisms as it were, make you just feel a bit more reluctant to support the, you know, the whole child. So during that time, I looked back to what our mission is, and it's to improve the life of every child, not just some kids, but all of them. So to me, it has not made us more reluctant. It's made us more thoughtful and understand the environment we're in now and how we work to continue to further our mission and to be committed to every child um, in the environment we're in now. And so our support of Heartland Pride is around our team and wanting to be the most inclusive, diverse environment we can have because those are the patients we're serving, those are the families we're serving, and I want people to show up at our organization, whether you're an employee or a family member or a child, and feel like, your voice is heard, feel safe, feel included, feel part of the care team. So our support of Heartland Pride was driven from that, from our employee resource group who said, gosh, this is really important for us to know that we're supportive as an organization. And I think, you know, from the perspective of what information was put out, there was a lot of, I don't want to say misleading information, but I think it was misleading. And um, we provide care for all kids. And that, like, to me, that just grounds everything we do. And if you start saying, oh, it's just for these kids or these kids or these kids, if you're that child's parent, like if it was my parent when I was going through my back issue and they're like, oh, we don't take care of kids that have back issues. We were told that by several, you know, provider groups we saw. And that, like, it's, it is the worst situation to be in as a parent. You're trying to help your child. And so that for me, we are supposed to be the place that 
employees and families and patients can feel safe, can feel cared for, feel heard. Um, so no, it has not made us reluctant. It's just made us more thoughtful on how we approach that so that we are, we don't get, um, we don't create part of the noise, right? That we are, we stay true to who we are and what mission we're here to serve. You are, as you say, one of only 35 standalone children's hospitals. I have full faith that whatever the course of medical and sort of whole being care you provide to children and families is going to be the very best that can be accessed. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And I feel so confident in the people on our team to do that, right? That we've been able to, with what who we had already here and who we recruited in the last two years, be the kind of place that to me is a gift, not only for this community and state, but for the region to have right here in the Midwest where it's people that understand the people who live in this part of the country. That's that's really powerful. We have we have really established a team of people here that I have full confidence in and I know are following evidence-based practice when it exists and are constantly sort of looking for what's the best thing to do because we're an academic organization and that's sort of the strive is to be the very best at what we do. So yeah, I have 100% confidence in our team. So speaking of 100% confidence, uh, let's talk about you just as we begin to close. Sure. Um, Obviously, you embody 100% confidence. We (laughs) talked about that earlier. Is there a leadership lesson that has really stood out for you? I do love this question. I try to change up my answer, Stuart, on this because I've learned, I've had the, just the benefit of standing on the shoulders of really great giants of leadership and learning from amazing people. Um, and I think for me, as I've gotten to this place, like for me, it, my leadership is a lot about having grit, but also having grace with that and having both of those together. And, you know, it's that sort of stick to itness of keeping at it. And there's always a solution and it's going to be hard, but it's like hanging in there because as a leader, your team and the people around you need that from you. That's your job to just lean in and hang in there and get to the answer. But also um, is having the grace of understanding, you know, that everything isn't always going to work out great. And it's going to, you're going to have to sometimes say you're sorry, or we made a mistake. But understanding and having grace with yourself and with other people in the same way. Um and, and, you know, back to sort of that people first part, like that for me, I actually read a book um, that kind of made me go, oh my gosh, this is what I've been doing. It's called Patients Come Second. It's a terrible book to carry around a hospital. Like it's very awkward, but um, it was written by a couple of people that basically said in healthcare, if you take care of the people on your team, great quality outcomes happen, great patient engagement, employee engagement 
you know, you financially are great, all those things. And I thought, like, that's it. Like, that's what I'd been doing. And I just, I can't emphasize how much that has uh, been true in the pandemic of, I've been practicing that for years. And finally, I was like, look, this is why I've been practicing that of putting people at the beginning of that. And so for me, that grit and grace have kind of powered that for me to know that you got to stick to it and leadership's hard for a reason. But the grace of for yourself as a leader and also for the people on your team, that you can't just say all the things you have to do them as well, um, for me has been really just humbling um, since I've been here, but just humbling in my career. What have you learned about yourself? Yet the power of connections, how powerful they are. And healthcare is small. Pediatric healthcare is even smaller. But communities also play into that as well. And that, you know, we moved to Omaha because we wanted to be in a place where individuals can still make an impact. And we can, through other people, be connected to the community and the impact we're making. And that for me is really powerful. Like having an impact in the community I live in and knowing the people and not feeling like you're anonymous, right? Like there's, um, you know, good and bad with that. And to me, the good outweighs, you know, the ability to be anonymous. I like that connection with people. That's how great work gets done is doing it together versus being able to go real fast by yourself, you, the impact you make together is so much more powerful. And I, I've learned how much I value those connections, um, the connection with other people. It, it just, to me, it's what, it's what fills my cup, is that having people know who I am and knowing who people are, it's important. My guest today has been Chanda Chacon, President and Chief Executive Officer of Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha. Chanda, thank you so much for being on the show. This was so fun. Thank you. Do you have a creative outlet? Um, I love like um, refinishing furniture and like making old things have a new life. That is fascinating. Love it. And I have all like sort of found things. Like people yeah. come in my house and they're like, what is that? <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.